Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartman and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. Hi there, my name is Grant Hatch. I think the most important advice I'd give myself as a father would be to spend much more time being present in the lives of our children. When I mean present, it's not just being present, it's actually engaging with them and being with them in the moment. My next dad is from South Africa. His name is Grant Hatch and he is super inspiring. In his former life, Grant used to run the African business for a global corporate with more than 400,000 employees. But he's also an entrepreneur. Grant is 53, he's married and he's a father to four boys, 11 to the mid-20s. I say former life because Grant was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer about a year and a half ago. Terminal. He was told he had a few more months. Right now, Grant is basically one year past deadline and he looks very healthy. He has removed numerous tumors from his head by various experimental treatments. Today he is very much active as an entrepreneur, he gives speeches, he goes running, he spends a lot of his time with his wife and kids and he's still fighting the cancer. His unique approach to how he dealt with his cancer can fill hours and I hope he will write the book he told me he's gonna write. In this episode, however, we do not speak so much about the cancer he has. I wanted to know how his approach to life and to being a dad had changed after he was given the deadline. I was very much interested in the before and after Grant, the dad. We're all going to die, but more often than not, I find myself leading a life as if I never will die. Our session was truly valuable for me in this sense. We also covered some very interesting points on healthy relationships, instilling values in your children, and we talked about his own experiences as a dad of four boys in general. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were the deadline is real and I cannot make new time. Kids overwork, never give up, and instill values early and fast. Without any further ado, Grant Hatch, enjoy. Today I'm super stoked to sit with Grant Hatch. Grant, thank you for taking the time. Uh, Grant is a dad of four children, four boys in fact, 18, 21, 15 and 11. And um, Grant, maybe you can give us a quick intro about yourself. Yeah, so I'm. So my name is Grant Hatch. I'm 53 years old. I'm married to Heather. We'll be, we'll be married 26 years this year. Uh, we have four sons. The oldest steward is turning 21. He's a student at Stellenbosch, going to his third year BCom. Our son Ben, who turned 18 in December, is starting first year humanities at Stellenbosch. Um, our third son is Cameron, who's in grade 10. He's a really strong musician, baritone and ultra saxophone player. And Sam, our youngest, is 11. Um, including, and so we, they're also born differently. So Stuart was born in South Africa, and then we lived in England for for about seven years. And so Ben and Cameron were born in England. Um, and then Sam was born when we got back to South Africa. So they joke with each other between the South Africans and the Englishmen, uh, the oldest and the youngest being South African. Yeah. Uh, do you see quite a, is there quite a big difference between them due to culture of what they've experienced as children? I, th- I think what we, what, with all of them, including the oldest, they have a very strong affinity to England because they know it well and spend time there. But and Sam, you know, doesn't know England very well. We we've been there on holiday, but he he, he didn't grow up there or go to school there. Um, but what's more important is the four of them vary so much that it overrides that. I mean, so they're all uniquely different. Um, you know, there's there's similar similarities in trait and even looks amongst the four of them. But I'm sure, like with many children in the family, they are vastly different in their interests, their aptitudes, like doing what they don't like doing. Um, so we've, we've had to adapt our parenting style to take account of four very different characters. Yes. Um, I get this all the time. I have twins and triplets, as you know, yeah. and people always think like, oh, they're the same. Even though, even if, if you have identical twins, 
the characters of the kids are completely different. They are <laughs> different individuals. They're individual yeah. humans. Yeah. So that's that's amazing. Grant, I want to ask you to maybe give us some context around uh, your professional life, uh, where you come from, what you worked, maybe some context around family, just so we understand a bit of about yourself. So I started out life as a plant ecologist. I studied plant ecology um, and then carried on studying it. Maybe I, I didn't know when it was time to leave the university, so I carried on doing a master's degree in it. And then I changed from that to include doing a PhD in agriculture economics. So I decided I, I was interested in finance and economics, so I did that. Um, and then left a university. I'd spent some time on sabbatical in Australia, came back and ended up doing an MBA in Cape Town, mm -hmm. um, and then going into strategy consulting. So most of my career has actually not been in what I was trained in. It's been in strategy consulting with Capgemini, then with Accenture. And the last corporate role that I did until I kind of inverted commas retired a year and a half ago was working for Ethos Private Equity, running their Africa business, or helping their portfolio companies develop businesses in Africa. Um, so I've worked at Accenture a lot in Africa, East and West Africa, and then lastly with Ethos. And I really love working in Africa. It's a vibrant place and it's, it has its challenges. Um, travel is always complicated and difficult, but um, amazing business opportunities and amazing companies that are set up there. I saw that when I obviously researched and we talked, I know I know you, we know each other, so I know this and I saw it on the internet. Um, you actually published quite some stuff on the American, uh, on the on the African uh, opportunities in the consumer market and that's quite yeah, exciting. When, when I was yeah. at Accenture, they were very keen that I published that. We did a lot of primary research on size of markets and opportunities by country and ranking them. So that was really got me interested in Africa and then we started And that really led to us directing the work that we did in Africa. So we started targeting certain countries where we had offices or were opening offices um, and focused on, on, on and, and also sectors that were doing well. So you had everything from agriculture through to telecoms, retail, that varied by country. So it was an exciting space to work in. Yeah, and talking of exciting work, I know you were an, an amazing entrepreneur and also a high-powered business executive. And then, as you said, a year and a half, things changed, right? You stopped pretty much stopped working and you you became a stay-at-home dad from a working dad to a stay-at-home dad right yes. what what happened can you share i know obviously but share with us what happened and yeah. and and what journey you're on at the moment okay so yeah very interesting question but i literally went from being away monday to friday traveling in africa every week to literally spending my time mostly at home and with our children and really what triggered that is You know, I, I was also a very big, you know, marathon runner. So I actually spent a lot of time running marathons. And the main marathon I focused on was the Comrades Marathon. So I'd run it 13 times. I'd run it wow. many years. But yet for the last few years, I'd struggled. I actually found it very difficult. And I put that down to aging. I thought, you know, this aging process is quite tough. Um, and so in 2017, I ended up running a marathon in, in Benoni, of all places to try and get the last one of the last qualifiers in to run comrades. But I'd been finding in that month that I was finding more and more difficult to run. My left hip was hurting a lot. And again, I put it down to old age and you know, you just need to man up and fight through this. Uh, yet I ran that marathon, went around the first half fine. The second half, I started struggling. And I finished the marathon, but I didn't qualify for comrades. And I was pretty disappointed because I was, again, the first time ever I was going to not run comrades. So I'd been in that month to my doctor to try and see what was wrong. And he, he'd, he'd recommended um, giving me sort of cortisone injections, which I was quite happy with because you know, it numbed the pain and I could run as normal. You were in a full on performance mode in your head, yeah? Yeah, so I was, I was determined that I was going to overcome this thing that had hurt my, hurt my hip and, and, and whatever it was. So I went back to him off that marathon and said, you're going to have to hit me with another cortisone. And he said, I can't, you can't carry on taking them at this rate. So I'm going to send you to a neurosurgeon. And I said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I think I've got a pinched nerve in my leg. We'll get it sorted out. I went to see a surgeon. He, he basically um, said, let's do an MRI. And you probably write it as a pinched nerve. And it went from that on a Tuesday morning, me going off to an MRI, to the Friday morning, where we met with the same surgeon after a whole day of tests and discovered that I actually had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So, I mean, I was really shocked because I could run six minute kilometers without, you know, much effort. Um, and I certainly never felt out of breath or that I had any problem with my lungs. Yet I had tumors in both lungs extensively. 
they'd spread to my sort of hips, my back, my neck, my liver, um, and to the hip that had, had been affecting me most. So I literally had to make a tough choice in life. I realized, you know, suddenly this life that I thought was going to continue indefinitely, and as one always does, you think you can live forever, or at least live to you 80 or 90, um, made me realize that that life might not be true. And so the first thing I did was I took... So we were going to France on holiday anyway. I spent that time for two weeks thinking about life. And I literally came back and resigned from the job I was doing, um, gave up all corporate activity completely and, and decided to spend all of that effort focusing on my wife and my children. Um, because if I didn't know how long I had left, but I knew it was, a, it was not the 50 or 30 or 20 years one assumes you have left in your life, I wanted to spend that with my children and with my wife. And and also live every day to the full, you know, not you know, in the corporate, so much of your day is, is absorbed doing corporate stuff and doing client work and you're actually, the, the weeks and months go past in blurs almost and you're disconnected a lot from your family, um, so I decided to change that completely. So that's a hectic decision and, and oh, sorry, a, a hectic diagnosis and big news to, if, if I remember correctly, you told me they said three months so you're, you're easily a, a year past, past due date. No, no, I've that's well lived past the due date. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I have. So you don't look, you don't look like you have an, a, a condition. That's what I find so amazing. People can't see you now, but I can see it. Mm. And, and can you tell us a bit about your journey since then? So you said you became a stay-at-home dad. I know you are super involved in learning about uh, cancer and your condition and how you treat yourself and I know we talked about that but and that's amazing and it's a whole different episode on its own I guess but yeah. what what I want to really hear about is how did it affect the family how did you deal with it how did it change the relationship between you and your sons how did the sons deal with it your wife so in a family setting it's such a uh, extreme uh, new situation. How did you guys deal with it? Were there strategies you can share? What's important insights? Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing is it's difficult to share on a journey you don't know yourself. So you've got doctors giving you opinions on, and on what the journey might be like. But we certainly, my wife and I sat down with our four boys early on um, and discussed it with them. You know, they were initially you know, clearly very upset because Word cancer is something that people don't know well. You don't, unless you have cancer, you don't know what it's like, or you yeah. have a relative, or you know someone you know close to your family, you might have a view on it. Um, but what you don't, what you don't have is any idea about it. So we we shared what we knew at the time, um, and and discussed with them how it's going to be changing. I was not going to be working in the same way I was. I'd be spending more time with them. So they were, I think they were comfortable with that part, but they were equally uncertain about the future so it was a bit of a shock for them as it had been for my wife of course and yeah um and that was part of the change that we made the other thing that i'd done is you know i and it's maybe my sort of own nature is i set out to spend an enormous amount of time so what i gave up in corporate life i, I started becoming what i describe myself now as an amateur oncologist i started researching everything about my condition you know it took me a few weeks to sort of catch up with you know in the specific type of cancer that I had that generalist oncologists take years to know about. So, and then I started getting involved in my own treatment. So I became, you know, I challenged the doctors on treatment recommendations, started adding in alternate treatments to my own regime. So I went way beyond the standard of care. And the amazing thing is it has worked to a point. One has to accept, you know, you, you never know on a journey with a, with a terminal illness when, when it ends. But you know, the, the strange part about it is, you know, initially I was very sick, um, but I've recovered on some of the treatment that I've been on to the extent that, you know, initially doctors had told me I shouldn't be doing any exercise, shouldn't be running, shouldn't be kayaking. Um, and I realized after a while, if, you know, if I was going to be living my life differently, I didn't want to give up on those things. I just have to do them differently. So I've started running again. I kayak, I go out to sea. But I'm just careful. I don't take on big waves or big surf and try to kill big fish out at sea, which is dangerous. But my back has been pretty compromised, but it's been healing. And that's the irony is I, I continuously meet people who don't believe that I'm sick. Well, they say to me, you've obviously been healed. You told me you've, you've removed a few uh, tumors from your own head in t with your own treatments. Yeah, that's so, crazy. So yeah. I'm on a whole range of repurposed drugs from metformin to melatonin and a whole lot of things that 
I've researched on in that work, which are not part of the standard of care. Yeah. But I, I'm view really honors, and, and it's sadly, people either go one route, they either go alternately alternate drugs, or they go standard of care. I went both. I said, well, you know, we're going to throw the kitchen sink at this thing. If we're going to take on this battle, then I need to go and with the right armor and the right approach. And yeah. There's also, and that links back to the children. There's, a, there's in this journey, there's an enormous spiritual element to it. You know, and I can't comment for other people, but you know, I went from you know, overnight too from being a very nominal Christian who kind of, you know, my wife would sort of have to encourage me to go to church with her occasionally to me realizing when your life is threatened like this and you have to make these kind of changes, you've got to, you've got to really understand what you believe in. Um, and, it, and it led to me sort of recommitting my faith in Christianity and Christ very, very clearly. Um, but I also realized that actually when you're on a journey like this, and if you look back to people who, who, who survive through these journeys, it's about what you believe in, but also you have to have something to believe in. And so that became my family. You know, I realized that, you know, if you look at Viktor Frankl's book, he survived, you know, periods, you know, where his life was on the line hourly, not monthly. Um, and, and, and what got him through and got people through their life in Auschwitz was the fact that they believed in something and they could hold on to you know, a family member or their wife or something that, that, that got them through that. And so I realized I had to anchor my journey in that, in faith and in my family. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think those were very important for me. And I think they're linked. And I think if you get those right, it can, you know, we, none of us are going to live forever. No. You know, we don't know that. Or new people in a hundred years in yeah. the whole world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so... I mean, that's been very much part of our journey and it linked back to me spending a lot more time with my wife and family you know, as part of that sort of process. And can you talk about the obvious impact and change you can see in the family if you compare your involvement as a dad before, because you're strapped for time, you were traveling, and your involvement now with the new mindset and and valuing time much differently maybe. Well, how, what has changed concretely? I think what's markedly changed is I was present in our children's lives, but I wasn't present enough because I was away working. When I was at home, I was thinking about that job and, and often on the phone around it doing emails. What I did do very consciously in the old way I lived is I was very adamant I wouldn't work weekends. So I would work flat out till Friday evening and then I would down tools and spend Saturday and Sunday with them going kayaking with them, spending time with them. But on Sunday evenings, I would be back into work mode. And I think that leads to a sort of a, a bit of a shallow relationship with your children because you're not there enough. You need to be more present. Um, where I am now, because I'm spending enormous amounts of time with them, it, it's given me the time to actually invest, because they're so different, invest time in different ways with each of them, to be with them. to disc And I'd also had this view that You know, you think you've got all this wisdom you can impart to your children. And I thought, well, I had 30, 40 years to do this. I would drip feed it as needed and, you know, I wouldn't need to be that involved. But when you suddenly realize you might not have the time, I suddenly realized I needed to spend a lot more time with them, a lot more time discussing really important things like what you study at university, your career, relationships, faith, what you believe about life, all of those kind of things. And having those discussions much more intensely now than I would have ever had in the past. And and I can see a visible change in it because I'm now present in their lives continuously. I still struggle with that, you know, I'm still tempted to be distracted by you know, reading the news or of course. catching up with the odd email that does now arrive. Um, and it's something I've had to work out really hard. I mean, you know, but it, it, it's, in some ways, the gift that cancer has given me is it actually allowed me to find back the life that I should have been leading from the start. But yeah. I was so distracted by career and all of that 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 brought. Yeah. Um, it kind of was lost on me. Um, and I think that's the sad part. Many people go through life working very hard in a corporate environment, but missing probably the most important thing in their life, which is their wife and their family. Yeah. Uh, and until they, there's a distance between them, they, you know, they grow up quickly. Our older two are, are leaving home virtually. You know, you, you, it's amazing how fast children do grow up and you, you don't see it. So I'm really grateful that I've been given this opportunity to actually live the life with them that I should have been living in my own mind in the past. So instead of drip feeding, start implementing early and power charge them with whatever you need yeah. to. I spend an enormous time with them either in, as individuals and I try and do that with each of them yes. or in, it's in groups. Um, obviously we can't have the same discussions with a 21 year old as you can with of an course. 11 year old. 
Um, but we try and touch on those topics, and so it's you know we, we debate a lot of things. And the interesting thing is, children you know now have access to so much technology and information and iPhones and all sorts of things like that. They can learn a lot of stuff on their own. So the level of discussion one can have with them is, is really interesting. So we discuss history about music, about science, about the universe. I mean, all of these kind of things. So I actually am finding this quite fascinating. You realize that younger people are you know, exposed to so much knowledge that they can, that they're actually smart people. They can think about these things and challenge your own thinking. So it's, it's, it hasn't been a process of me just sort of telling them what I've learned in life and I do but I've also learned a lot from them actually about how they yeah. see life and yeah. how they approach issues and it, and it is very different to the way I grew up I mean I grew up in an environment I mean I'm exposed to my age here an environment where you know the most technology we had in the house was an old sort of manual calculator I mean <laughs> iPhones and stuff so their ability to access information is at a profound level and their ability to process it and what they want out of life is, is very different to the way I grew up That's an interesting discussion. How do you uh, do you regulate technology in the house? Do they have free access to internet and cell phones and those kind of things? They do, but I mean, what we're quite strict on is is you know we as a family have always eaten meals together, so yes. there's no technology during meals. Um, you know, we expect them to sort of switch it off at night um, and spend time. It, but it's difficult because modern children become so adapted and used to that technology. I mean, I have to keep asking them how to fix my iPhone or yes. fix technology. Um, But there's a fine line between adaptation and addiction. Yeah, we focus very hard on limiting the amount of time. So, especially our younger children, so Cam, um, Sam, who's 11, we have quite strict rules. No playing on iPads or games during the week, only on weekends and only in limited amounts. Um, yet we, and the older, we, the older children, we let them get exposure and they want to to learn about technology yes but we're quite strict on you know eating meals together and not sitting on your phone they'd probably if we were talking to them they'd probably say I'm the I'm the guilty party because I spend too much time on of course phone. so I have to consciously manage that and not spend time on yeah. it because it, it's too distracting um, so Well, you have to do as you say, right? Otherwise, you have no leg to stand on. Yeah, if if um, I read um, an interesting book called The Boy Crisis by William Farrell, and he talks about exactly this um, dinner, family dinner, okay. um, and he proposes that there should be a structure where each family member, uh, you take turns, and then each family member does a check-in on a topic, and that topic is debated. Every family member gets the same airtime, regardless of age um, and once that's done you, you have a dinner and, and I mean you have a dinner while you do the check-in do you have some sort of structure to your family dinner or do you just say we eat at six and we eat together until everybody's finished and that's it yeah we do we, it is quite structured because we, we typically will prepare the meal our boys help setting the table and, and getting things ready um, my wife and I will typically dish the food to them and during that meal We, we, we often start the discussion by asking them what they did in their day and, and that's a good way of them telling us about what's bothering them as well. We discuss that we don't have a structured time yeah. that we allocate. It's more of a general discussion. And, and there's a lot of sort of panting that goes on, sort of, of course. You know, teasing each other, teasing me. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I've lost track of the number of ball jokes I've heard. Um, <laughs> so we, but we spend this time together as a family. And when we finish the meal, They generally help clean up. Um, often there's a debate about whose turn it is. Um, we, we get the kitchen clean and then they go off and do homework and things um, as they're doing all day. They, they've certainly, um, Ben and, and, and Cameron, our, our middle two, are very into music. So they often go away and play saxophone or guitar or piano. And then what we do is we try and have tea with them or sit with them late in the evening. So it's very much a family ritual. So in a yeah. sense, it is very much structured. You know, even though you don't, you don't try and control the content of what's but this framework. You give a framework which is very valuable because children understand that this is what's going to happen and this is where maybe important topics can come up and can be discussed. You let them drive that agenda. We'll debate. You know, we had a meteorite arrive last week. We had a long debate about what a difference in between a meteorite and a meteor. If a meteorite hits the sea, or is it a meteor or a meteorite? Because that isn't at the Earth. So we, we, I try and get those debates going, but I often let them raise the issues and stuff they want to talk about. So yeah. it's not me imposing an agenda. It, it comes from any any of them, um, and it's quite a, it's quite a healthy interaction. So 
we, we do have that discussion. And obviously they read up on stuff, including cancer. They'll often raise new, new treatments they've discovered or stuff that they want to ask me about. Um, and so we, we let them drive that agenda largely uh, rather than us dictate it. I guess it's better if you discuss these or also difficult topics openly because otherwise they'll make up their own conclusions, right? They do, and also what we we want them to be clear on is that they they're not there's an, you know they shouldn't have any fear on this journey, but equally we we share what we know at the time because there's no point me sharing, you know what we what we don't know because yeah. what you do is you create in children's minds fear you don't want to instill fear yeah, yeah. and so yeah. we're very conscious of that, um, but uh, it's a hard balance because you know, yes. how much do you share how much do you not share so we. We are careful around that, and we, we're also careful what we share with friends and family, so that there isn't one version of the story going to them and another to our boys. Yes, so I make sure that what people are hearing of this journey that that I'm on is is very consistent. You know, I find it's also okay to say no. So I have um, I have uh, twins, as you know, whom we've adopted, and people people. Uh, there seems to be no boundary to what people want to know, you know, people just ask us uh, ridiculous things like, well, where is their real mother? While the kids are sitting next to us kind yeah. of thing. And, and, and I clearly tell them, look, we're not debating or we're not discussing this until the children are old enough to tell their own story. What I really don't want is the kids to hear their story or to be hearing their story from someone else. That's not on. So I think it's totally okay to tell people, hey, you know, there's some sort of privacy here and and it's none of your business, yeah. really. That's okay. Yeah. No, it Because it isn't. I think the, the, we, we're quite careful of, you know, there are people who want to know the sort of gory yeah. detail and we just don't discuss it because no. it's not relevant. To, no, none of your business. We need to know it and equally, it's not relevant to our children because you, we don't want to create a, a sort of an element of fear amongst them because they're all young people. Yes, you know, we don't know what the future is going to lie, but I mean, that's true of anybody. We, no one knows the journey of their life, but you don't share that risk and speculate about what could go wrong yeah. because it's just not relevant. But talking about future, I think what you said earlier is very relevant uh, in terms of the drip feeding information or drip feed, trying to drip feed um, certain values. That you, it applies also to issues, right? So you can play this game of if I had four more years to live, four more months, four more weeks, four more minutes. Mm. What do you do now if there's four minutes, right? So you can probably come up with, I have to call two people, uh, this is, needs to be said. Basically put your affairs in order, take the rocks out of the backpack and then you can carry on. Was there some sort of realization for you of, of those kind of things, particularly around maybe your dad, maybe you as a dad or family per se that you that you executed on in, in, in your realization of, hey, there is actually a deadline. I mean, we all know there's a deadline, but it's never as clear and closely put to us, if you, if you know what I mean, as a def definitive. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the, the way I've dealt with that is part of what I've learned on this journey personally is I if I think back to my other life in a corporate kind of role, I lived probably three to five years in the future. I was always thinking, what would be the next role? What would I do in the future? What holiday would I go in in three years' time or two years' time or next year? I now live in the present. Um, so I actually you know, spend time in each day. You know, so I spend time walking in our garden, listening to birds. I go walking in the estate with, that we live in with my wife regularly. I don't, I don't spend my time in the future anymore. Um, it's not to say that one, you, know, you can't ignore the future, but I'd say the balance is now much more skewed towards spending time in the present. And that, and that living in the present means that you're actually much more available to your children and wife to spend time with them. And, you know, so I don't, I don't, so I don't have a, you know, in contrast to my sort of former life, I had a diary that was full six months ahead. You know, I literally try not to fill the week with the clutter that I don't need to take part in um, and actually spend the time sort of And, 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 and there's a trade-off there because, um, you know, obviously when you're working in a corporate role, you're very busy, you're very detached from your family or distant from your family, much as you can try, but you earn a lot of money and you, you, you're very comfortable from that point. If you have now adopted a different model where you're spending time, that comes at a cost. You're not earning that money anymore. Yeah. And so you've got to then think about how you adjust your, your treatment options, how you adjust your, your expenditure. And, and getting that balance right is another challenge that you've got to also manage because you, you can't carry on spending at one level 
when you're earning at another level. And I think our children become much more aware of that. I mean, I'm, I'm, one of the lessons I'm trying to get them to understand, because I think you know, modern parents, and I, and I said, and our children's friends, because we, we care for our children, you want to give them as much as you can, but you've got to be very careful you not give, them to, give it to them too easily, because otherwise they lose the idea that you've got to actually wait for something, you've got to earn, you know, save for something and buy it, not just expect that it comes instantly from your parents. And I think we were we probably heard in that in the past because we wanted our children to be happy, we wanted them to be, you know, grow up to be good adults. But actually, you know, what we've done is become much more in terms of teaching them things, important financial things like saving, the cost of money, what you spend on certain items. So I have a lot of discussion with them on that. Um, and that they've appreciated. I mean, they have strong views themselves. I mean, and each, and again, each of them are different, you know. You know one of our sons, you know, if, you, if he has any money, will spend it on his friends. Our other son saves everything. And so you've got to almost work out with him the plan of what he's going to spend that money on. Um, so we do spend we do spend quite a lot of time on that, on that on that sort of topic. But I think the big change for me is having learned to live in the present. It was something I struggled with because I was so distracted and busy and future focused. Do you have a morning routine? Yeah, I do. I do actually. I mean, I I try and I'm not a morning person. I have to admit. So you know, my wife is a morning person. So yeah. she's up early getting the children ready for school. I know you see them before they leave, but I'm another one. I'm the guy up later at night needing to get them to bed. My wife goes to bed earlier than I do, so we've kind of had this working routine. But what I do is I get up in the morning, I spend time reading, um, I, I, I manage to read a lot more books than I ever read before. I think I've read more books in the past year and a half than I did in the past 15 years probably. Um, so I spend quite a bit of time thinking about that. I spend, I spend each morning in a quiet time in prayer. I mean, that for me is really important. It's part of my daily routine now. Um, I've got you know much stronger at that. And then I spend, I spend the time, you know, I'll try if I can go for a run or, you know, do some exercise. So I do biokinetics. Um, and then I wait till the children come home and then I spend the afternoons with them. We sit down and talk about their day or what's bothering them or some you know, what tests have got coming up. Um, but that's been the huge advantage of being present. So I've actually been able to create these routines that yes. weave their lives into them as well. Because you can program your mind, can't you? When you say, I've gotten stronger through, through my prayers, what you're really saying is that you've gotten stronger in your mind, which obviously directly transfers into your body. And you have testimony to that. So yeah, yeah, I think that's I think very valuable. Linked. I think linked. Of course they're linked. I mean, have you ever tried to get this raging, burning emotion into your in or physical emotion into your gut without actually being angry and thinking a thought before that it's not possible so they're 100% linked yeah you know? they are. I think the one thing that I did do is I, I think when you work in a corporate environment there's always pressure on you um, yeah. to get deadlines met do things because I don't have that pressure on me anymore I mean you know I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the tumors within me and actually what you know and thinking about them and making sure that my body is directed towards fighting them but that's that's just a sort of personal thing but i think as i said to you right at the beginning i think you, to, to fight this battle on this journey you've got to have your faith aligned with your family and, and then fight the disease it's the three f's that you've got to get in place in that order actually um, and i think the, the danger is many people just fight the disease and that's not what i focus on so but but part of it and it is quite surreal around this is I've never felt bitter or angry about what's happened to me. I just took that as, you know, life deals you with a series of cards and you play them as they land, you know. It's not helpful to wish you had a different set of cards or, you know, be be envious of other people or grateful that you're not other people. I just literally take it as, well, these are the cards that I dealt, I now need to deal with them and play it. And so it's, I have a lot of peace around this journey. I mean, and, and a lot of comfort around the time that I can spend with the children. Again, not knowing how long it'll be. Um, and I think they, they've understood that. They, they've become very comfortable with me being around. Yes. You know, on the odd occasion, and it's very, very seldom, I go away for an evening. Um, when I get back, they say they miss me. You know, whereas before they were, I was away Monday to Friday, so it was routine for them. They were used, used to it. To Different routines, talking so of routines. Yeah. We have created a new routine uh, yeah. around me being present, me being at every school concert or, or football or not. I know I've always played football, though they follow, but cricket or rugby matches that they, they participate in. I, I go to all of them now. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, I was present at very few because mm -hmm. I was you know, 
halfway around Africa, not here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's been pretty enriching. And, and I think for our boys, it's been really good having that time. Mm-hmm. 90% is, uh, of the job is showing up, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it is absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and being consciously present. I think again, you know, it comes back to cell phones, not having your cell phone handy, which I would admit I struggle with, but you've got to actually get that right as well. Yes. Encourage the conditions where not you're, you're not on on screens all the time, which is very hard with modern teenagers. They, they, the whole social environment is built around that. Um, trying to get them to operate differently can be a challenge. They admit, they'll admit it themselves. Of course they do. Yeah. They're not stupid. Yeah. Like you say, they're extremely engaged and highly intelligent. Yeah. However, as we discussed earlier, there's a problem around screen addiction, right? Mm-hmm. I'm screen addicted, totally, you know. We, for instance, what we did, we don't have a TV in the house at all. There's no TV. But I mean, my children are one and a half and three. And you must look at the one and a half year old, how she throws attention when I take the cell phone away. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, of course, this crazy box, you know, it, it makes sound, it takes pictures, you can be on a telephone with it, with video. You can listen to music. Of course, it's it's enticing. It's amazing. Yeah. But that's also the danger. Yeah, it's a real danger that cell phones have become so prevalent. I mean, you know, don't we... I mean, I certainly never grew up with those things. They're growing up with them. So yes. they become part of their lives ingrained. Um, the, the lessons I've been trying to teach them is, you know, and, and by example, badly, is is to... Yes, they're very useful devices, but you can, you can have a break from them. You don't have to be on them all the time. You can leave them. So we do try and encourage our children to. Mm. Can you share a few insights or basically just a few more insights if you just look back on your journey as a dad? Important lessons that you've learned that might be valuable to some other dad out there or parent? You know, I think that that, it's an interesting question. Uh, It does make one think. I think if I look back of how our boys have been raised, um, You know, and from when the day they were born, I was working in a corporate environment, so I didn't see them enough. And, you, and, and there's a level of engagement that you can't get on weekends only. Um, you know, and fortunately, my wife and I are very happily married, so we've both been involved. So when I wasn't present, she was very present and involved in all of that. So they've grown up very well around it, but the, the, the regret for me is I wasn't involved more in that time. You know, so the, the lesson for me has been, and I'd say to any other dad, who, especially that one with the young children, is, you know, they grow up so quickly. It's amazing how fast they grow up. Just don't let that opportunity to spend that time with them yeah. and engaging with them escape you because it can very quickly. Um, and, and actually, it does require conscious effort to spend that time. Yeah. And, and I think we build our careers around ourselves firstly and then the income and prestige that that brings. And I think if I had to do it differently, I'd build it around my family first. You take on roles that give you the time that you're not traveling all the time, that you're at home, you're present, you can spend the time with them. Um, and that for me has been really, is really important that everyone gets that balance right. Yes. Also in today's time with uh, digital jobs that you can do remotely and in a time where companies are really battling to find good people, employees are in a position to negotiate around your own time, right? So it's very possible that you work Fridays from home and you don't have to commute and you can still work and you start at 10 and maybe you do a little bit more work in the evening after the kids have gone to bed and there's another whole day. You know, so these things are very possible these days. I mean, there are now rankings of companies that are um, parent-friendly because companies see this, you know, they see it from an HR perspective that there's a shift towards trying for, for dads to be more involved and companies are trying to cater for this so that they can win these dads as, as valuable employees. I think companies have been very good at dealing with women in that context because yeah. they're their childbearer and so they've had to create maternity leave and, and time and giving people that opportunity. But I'm not sure they've got it fully in place for how fathers deal with it. Yes. And that for me is a bit of a sort of paradox of, of, of corporate focus on, on women being the primary caregiver not the father um, and so but it does go down to individual because I think what corporates have also learned that people don't want to commit all of their time on the eight to five kind of model weekly so whether it's children or people might having a hobby that they want to pursue 
that they're starting to create that space to allow people to do that yeah. and let people work flexibly. It's better anyways to focus on results rather than just time, right? Yeah, but it, it, it depends on the corporate. Some are like that, but in my experience, many are still not there. So they, their focus is on time rather than output. Are there more insights that you can share? Maybe when your wife fell pregnant the first time or you witnessed the first birth or whatever they might have been in school for the kids or friends that your kids were surrounded with or other parents, whatever that's valuable that comes to mind. Yeah, I think if I think it's such a long time ago to our oldest, even Sam, 11 years ago, I think what what I did do at the time, and I think what's really important is that the two of you as parents um, agree and work out how to actually raise this child because it is difficult. It's not a straightforward process. So we kind of worked out, and I'd say it's something you've got to get right, is Who's going to do what in this thing? You know, it's, it's otherwise you you took over each other. And actually, what we did is, um, and actually, our parenting styles are very different. I'm I'm more adapted to bigger children. My wife loves babies, so in the baby phase, she put in a lot more effort. I was still involved, but she was very driven in that. As they got to sort of three, four, five years older, I started spending more and more time with them. Obviously, we had the next child coming along, so it kind of yeah. it was like a sort of a relay effect that we had going here. Um, kind of ended when we had the fourth child and we had long debates about whether to have another child or even adopt at that point but um, we agreed four, four was basically enough our house was pretty full at that point yeah. um, but what worked well is the way we could sort of um, play as a team teamwork and work through them how did you guys resolve or how do you resolve different opinions on, on parenting styles or rules do you have a structure for this do you just talk it out or is there some form of check-in that you do or how, how do you do that? That's an interesting, another interesting, very interesting question. I think um, because our styles are so different, um, we, we, um, Heather and I spend a lot of time talking about issues that we face with the children and reach an agreement on how it's resolved. And sometimes I'll agree with her that yes, your approach, which is much gentler and kinder, is the right outcome or the right approach. Another time she'll agree with me, no, some discipline and sort of saying no is probably what's required. Do you do this in front of the children ever? No, not really. We, we will normally discuss it with, we'll separately discuss what we agree and then, because the one thing I've learned with children, they're very good at manipulating their parents and playing one off against the other. So we're very good at doing that. So they've learned long ago that you won't get one answer out of one parent and a different, more favorable answer out of the other. Because the first thing we'll say is, no, we'll discuss it and we'll then discuss it with you. So we, the approach we follow is if there's any issue that arises, we discuss it as husband and wife first agree an approach and then and then we sit with the children and united front because then at least we we know that the answers yeah. can be similar and, yeah, and, and often now boys will raise issues about you know we've said no for example to attending a certain party and they'll raise you know reasons why we're wrong and they're right and we listen to that as well yeah so we don't you know we don't try and be draconian in those answers yeah um, but they also then start understanding our reasons for concerns you know yeah And on that, on that united front, I find it myself, it can be extremely, it can feel extremely uh, difficult if you are suddenly the bad one. So it's better to have one standpoint between the parents, one standing. Yeah, you know? we, we very much do that. Yeah, so there's, there's that's never good. a decision where Heather and I in front of the children are saying we disagree. Uh, we might debate it in front of them. Yes. And, and, and they may perceive it as disagreement, but yeah. it's about the debate that... Uh, you know, we're also conscious that I want them as boys to understand that we've listened to them, you know, and it's not just we heard them and then didn't react. Um, so they know that actually we debate these issues quite intensively with them. So by the time we get to decision, they've bought into it as well. It's not us imposing our view. It's not them imposing their, view, their will. Um, we kind of reach an agreement. Um, You know, and, and actually, it goes even further than that. I mean, they, they then tend to find friends who, who relate to that kind of parenting. You know, so they, they have friends that are, that, whose parents will act in the same way. And they'll often tell us that. They will tell us, for example, you're the strictest of our friends' parents. But I say, well, that's fine. You know, we're, I, I can tell you all the parents are the strictest yeah, of yeah, uh, their... I'm sure their friends' <laughs> children Exactly. Oh, yeah, their friends' parents are also hearing that. But he can do it, exactly. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not a bad way of doing it. It's a good negotiation technique, so there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I must say, negotiating with teenagers is very, very testing because they are just smart guys and they come up with amazing arguments of why the, their position is correct and you, you might be wrong. Um, so, so I've got used to that as well. 
Um, well, once you've been through the first teenager, you kind of develop your own model of teenage negotiation, which, yeah. which is important as well. Yeah. Um, oh, they negotiate from a very young age. They know exactly how things work. Yeah, we found that at age two, they're really negotiating. Yes. They they're able to negotiate. Of course. Yeah. Um, age three, they add the temper to it as well. So they can negotiate and then if they lose, they can bring out the temper one. So yes. But they grow out of that quite quickly. But, you know, it's... It, it's it's quite it's part of the journey. It's part of them growing up and you know interacting. Um, what I do know, and I think it's quite interesting, is you know I, I had a very good relationship with my father, but you know we didn't until I was much older. We didn't have these kind of discussions that I had with um, we have with our sons. Why know, not? Why do you think that is? I think he was from a generation where you know you know it was a much more hierarchical parenting style. Although as I got older, he changed it a lot. Um, whereas I think parenting styles now are, are, are way more collaborative. I mean, certainly the, the, the discussions we have with our children are, are much deeper and, and fundamental than, than I ever had with my father. I only had those later. Um, so, so I think um, it's quite a good fundamental change where there isn't this hierarchy um, taking place where there's my what. And again, my, our sons might disagree and say, yes, there is this hierarchical system. But we try and actually make it much more collaborative, much more, you know, sort of a, of a debate on issues. Well, it's fair enough. You're also not 20 years old, you know, so there's nothing wrong with having some standpoints and some wisdom, which, you know, this is, this is just how I see it. And maybe I've got a little bit more experience. Not that I'm disregarding uh, your point of view as my son, but, you know, I've seen one or two things and, and that's why... I maybe have a, a good point and leg to stand on. Yeah, I think they've learned a lot on that. Is, you know, we're very careful on things like safety, you know, where, they, where they're traveling with friends, you know, where they're going and, you know, and they've learned that already. So they'll be, they'll almost be able to answer their own questions before yeah. they get to us saying, no, you're not going to be able to drive to this party with friends and come back at three in the morning, you know, to pick you back earlier and, and there's yeah. no control. And so they've learned. Yeah, they know so, it. Yeah. Of course they know it. They try, but they... Do you think in that society, so your dad was very different, um, you're now different, your sons will be different as dads. Do you think a big reason for that is also the impact that society has? So how we perceive dads and what their role is in the family? I, I think there's definitely a generational change in parenting styles. I think the, the big, I mean, if I see across their peer group, um, if I compare myself, but I'm sure every generation does this, you kind of think back, well, it was tougher for me when I was younger. Yeah. It is for them now. You know, if I speak to our sons, they think their school's a tough place to be in, and we're strict parents. Yeah. I think that's just human nature. Um, but what I do see very much is parents as a whole, and I have a look across even our friends and their children, I tend to be much more, um, what's the right word? I mean, You know, they, they tend to give too much to their children. I mean, it's very materialistic. Children get stuff very easily. And I'm not sure that's it's, it's sort of inculcating the value system that helps them, is going to help them in life. You know, we have lots of, deb I mean, we have regular debates with our sons who sort of describe me as sort of, you know, sort of old fashioned, but, you know, equally they're the sort of millennials. And so yeah. we, we do have this, there is this millennial sort of kind of process that goes on, you know. The, The headmaster of their school calls it millennial flakiness. You know, I saw it when I worked at Accenture where there isn't the same sort of st strength of character of sticking at something because it's easy to change it. You know, it's, you know if you don't like something, you just change it. You know? uh, yeah. So that value system, I, yeah. I, I really spend a lot of time with them on saying... I can tell you all our interns, sorry to interrupt, but this is exact, all our interns are actually CEOs mm. in, our, in my company, mm. really. They think so anyways. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think, a little bit of what you're saying. There's also, yeah, I think it, it, it ties in a little bit with what we've discussed earlier. This quote I told you about, leave, leave our children a better planet versus uh, leaving our planet a better children or different children. It's a lot about values, education, understanding, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't end with us. That's... That's important. That's interesting. It's, it's an interesting point, though, because I've actually learned a lot from our children about that. You know? Yes. Even though I've been very strong in belief in conservation my whole life, they themselves are much more aware of our impact on the planet, food they eat, types of food, packaging, 
and they'll really bring that up. I've obviously become on this cancer journey, I'm on, become much more focused on what we eat and you know the preservatives in food and chemicals we expose to because I think it has a fundamental effect on the human body. Of course. But Can I'm, you talk about your diet? I've, I've actually we, we've kind of reached you know when I first were diagnosed and I guess when you go through the shock of that kind of news that you know doctors sit you down and tell you you aren't going to live forever. I immediately went on to a sort of very strict vegan diet. I stopped eating meat completely. I started eating only vegan food, you know, no milk, no dairy. But I realized it's actually very difficult to live like that because you can't get that food very easily. And if you do get it, it's, it's, it's very expensive. And I also started losing a lot of body mass. And so I've moved back towards, you know, I do eat you know, meat. The meat we eat is either free-range or organic. We're very strict on that. No preservatives, no farm, you know, intensively farmed animals. Um, but we limit the meat that we, we eat enormously. You know, we and we've and actually our, uh, our oldest son was a vegetarian for two years, and we learned a lot from that pr process of cooking him with vegetarian food. Um, so we now eat at least one or two meals a week vegetarian. We try and eat fish. We we cut down on red meat. And then on vegetables, we try and buy as much as we can fresh. We try and focus on organic. Um, we make our own juice. You know, we, we, we make our own bread. We've become much, and again, because I'm around and my wife and I can spend time on this, you know, we make a lot of our own food. It's been part of, you know, you spend time. And I've been, one of the skills I've been trying to teach our boys and, and you know, is, is learning how to cook food. You know, and they've, they've appreciated it. You know, every time they go to school camp, they're the guys cooking the food because they've been taught how to cook food. Yeah. Um, and they've learned how to cook food, and they're actually very interested in it. So um, we, do, we do eat quite a strict diet, relatively low meat, but it, it, it wasn't as strict as the previous diet. But um, I just couldn't sustain that sort of body yeah. body mass loss. But it, it is ironic. Our, one of our, oldest son, our oldest son, Stuart, came back from university one day and was horrified to find there was no sort of meat on the table. We were having a vegetarian meal that night. And he wow. said, you should have told me, otherwise I would have eaten at home. Um, <laughs> so I realized we've got, and he was very strong on the vegetarian path a while ago, but he eats small amounts of meat as well. He doesn't eat a lot, but he'll eat meat in between. He also eats a lot of fish. I mean, so we have fundamentally changed our diets. Yeah. Well, meat has a huge impact on, on this earth. Yeah. We have, what, yeah. 70 billion cows in the world? Yeah. I think the most successful time. animals are cows, chicken, and probably pigs, right? <laughs> Because yeah, we are. don't have an overpopulation in humans, we have an overpopulation in cows. Yeah, That's and a, the impact is huge. I yes. Mean, and the problem is, I mean, if you look at the, the average American is eating 30, 35% meat, and I'm sure the average South African is even higher because yeah. we price so much. Um, whereas, you know, we as a species probably shouldn't be eating more than about 5% or 10% meat. Yeah. And so I think the amount of meat consumption is too high, which leads to all the health issues, a lot of the health issues. Yeah. I mean, and also the environmental impacts of too many animals, especially pastured animals that are being intensively fed. So you're getting all these chem chemicals concentrated into the animals. They're then slaughtered and that's going straight. To so that's going straight in your body, yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I, I started life out as a plant ecologist, so I know that ecosystems need to be grazed, you know, but they can be grazed in a certain way. You don't have to intensively farm them. But if you didn't have that grazing pressure on them, they, they would change. Yeah. And they would change negatively, actually. So there is, there is merit in us eating meat, um, but, but in, in not in the quantities. That yeah, I agree. I, I'm a vegetarian for, I don't know, 10 years or something, or longer maybe. And I must admit, I probably think I'm probably lacking a few minerals here and there. Like in the mornings, I'm often very tired. And I think it's probably due to my diet. But yeah, like you say, it's difficult to to eat properly when when you cut out fish and meat, as, as I do. I eat well, eggs, but so I'm not vegan. But I have my own chicken, so I eat only so our own eggs. Home roast. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a risk with with you've got to eat a lot of protein and 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 iron and things like yes. that. Yes. Make sure that your body has enough. B12. You're going to eat a, a vegetarian diet. Yeah. I, I totally different question. Um, I think a lot about um, if you want to for the lack of a better term um, rights in the home between parents so what I mean by that is that mothers kind of own the right to be mothers in the home anyways right often they're in charge of, of um, education they have a they have taught what well, they have been taught to, to, to be in this role they have talked about this 
probably since they were 10 with their girlfriends and they've been prepared by society to be in this role as a mother. Yeah. As a father, I often feel and I, I speak to other dads about this and they confirm the same experiences. People's dads say things like, oh, when the children came, I lost all my rights. Basically, I felt disenfranchised. I was my, my wife's PA from one day to the next. Um, obviously, you know, we all agree from a conceptual level that that's not right. I, I almost feel like dads have to fight to, or to put in more effort, so to speak, to be in a position where they have the same equal rights in the home. Do you agree with this? Do you have strategies for this? Um, have you experienced this? Yeah, it's even even deeper question. Not in, My wife and I are very different characters. That's why we actually get on quite well. She is very much a traditional mother. She wants to spend her time with the children, you know, cook meals, uh, prepare the household and run it. And that's what she grew up wanting to do. I mean, my wife's ambition was to be a mother. She didn't want a career and whereas my ambition was to drive a career and provide. And so it's a very, we, we've somehow fallen into a very natural sort of, almost as society would expect probably in the 50s, not modern society. But what, what has worked really well is we, we do everything, we decide and do everything together. Okay. So it's not a case of... So she let you. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not a case of I was given the freedom to do that or that I was put on the obligation to do certain yeah. things. We chose those roles because they work for each other, but we, yeah. we, we work very closely together. So It's complementary. Kind of very much a team-based approach. I yeah. mean, we have very different skills. I mean, I couldn't clearly breastfeed. I mean, yeah. equally, I mean, Heather's not keen on mowing lawns, although she's a passionate gardener. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've fallen into those roles over time, and we've got kind of quite used to them. The one thing is is interesting, our boys have commented on this, I think modern women are not generally engineered in that way. They want to be in a career, want to be entirely equal with men. Um, and actually, and I, our boys can see it in their relationships with, with their friends and girlfriends. Um, so I think they're going to have to work out their own solution. To that. So that's an interesting topic. How do you prepare your... So what you're describing is basically... We have, um, we have prepared our daughters to be multi-optional women, right? Yeah. They can be full-time work, no problem, it's, it's accepted by society. Mm -hmm. They can be full-time mothers, no problem, it's also fine, or maybe half-half. Yeah. For men or boys, I find traditionally they're expected to be more, as you said, full-time provider. Mm -hmm. And the second option is full-time provider. And the third option is full-time provider. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, a man now has to compete with women um, in a work environment, which I agree with. I find this correct, but I think men should also have the same three options, right? How do you prepare your sons, as you have four, towards this new reality that you're realizing yourself in their relationships? I think, I think, I think we modern children or modern boys will see it differently. As our boys do not see themselves only doing career. Yes they see themselves much more as having a role. So they've watched Heather and my interaction with each other. They certainly, and they're very ambitious, so they want to have careers, but they equally want to be much more part of their family. So I don't think, you know, whereas I grew up with those three career things as this dominant yes. role in my life. Those were your options. Yeah, I don't think they're growing up in the same way. You tell them you have any option, you can be a stay-at-home dad, do you tell them? I haven't, had, I haven't gone as far as saying you need to be stand down. No, you don't need to be. You can be. But, uh, but what we do talk about is what what they aspire to be when they're older. Yes. And, and actually the traits they should be looking for in women and thinking about that. My wife does that quite a lot with them. Yeah. But what, what does she do? take the boys on dates? She spends a lot of time with them. So she I mean separately? Go, yeah, yeah. She'll often take one of them out to lunch. I do it as well. Yes. We, we each, and it isn't planned. I did for a while try and plan that. But it became too complicated and it became, yes. you know, especially with boys, so it'd be so, hang on, you, you, you're not, I'm missing my turn this Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and that became quite quite difficult. So what we do is, I, I just regularly, and Heather does it, we'll just go along and say, Ben, come for lunch and we'll go and chat. And then you get kind of deep discussion going with them. Um, but the topic you're raising about male-female roles in the household is a very evolving thing because you, you're all right. I mean women are being brought up to think they've got everything from full career through to full motherhood. Um, yet boys are going to have to work that out. Yes. I think what, it'll, what will happen is, much as the same as Heather and I did that, I mean, I kind of knew before we got married that that's what she wanted to be in life. 
that they will choose women that fit with what they feel comfortable with. You know, so if, you know, if they meet a very strong career-driven woman, they might actually spend more time with, in family and children. But equally, if they meet someone who wants, is, is a bit like Heather, wants to be a full-time mom, they'll adapt to that. And I suspect people would choose life partners that fit with that anyway. I mean, it's the same way that I, you know, when did it, you know, when I was getting married. So I think people will work it out. Um, but I think there is going to be a movement away from men into a different model than just career, career, career. Because, and that's good, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's very encouraging. They'll become more interactive with it. Um, and, and, and the system does it. I can remember when our boys were born, you know, I was allowed into the birth to watch. Um, and then as soon as the baby arrived, I was sort of pushed out to another room while everything else happened and then saw them in a nursery later. I think, you know, men are going to become way more involved in their children from birth, actually. Yes. Um, not, and, and the medical system will have to change, except that, you know, the dad might be there throughout. Um, you know, it's not just you kind of, you know, participate, but you, you observe, but you don't participate. I think that's going to change. The dad should be there. You're yeah. very much a part of the birth. Yeah. It is exactly. also your child. Yeah. Okay, with that, we're exactly at an hour. <laughs> Grant, I, I thank you so much for sitting with me. This has yeah, been, it's been useful for you. Yeah. amazing and it's a big inspiration. And I wish you, I wish you, truly wish you from my heart success and luck with your journey. It's an amazing one and it's amazing to, to watch you, how you're actually managing this and you, you, your own mindset towards it. That's, that's insane. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Philip, for your time as well. And hopefully other dads find some inspiration or something to think about. I'm sure of it. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Philip. Thank you, Rand. Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked this session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.